Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Jim Yates was born in Toowoomba, Australia on November 2, 1909. By 1960, he was 50 years old and had already accomplished more than most could hope for in a lifetime. He was a decorated medic in World War II and was responsible for saving incalculable lives. He was one of the most well-regarded surgeons in all of Sydney. And most of all, he lived in domestic bliss with his lovely wife, Diana. However, on Wednesday, September 14th, that all changed. At around 5 a.m., Diana had found her husband in their garage, laying in a pool of his own blood. He was pronounced dead a half hour later. And after spending some time at the scene of Jim's death, the police were just as stunned as Diana. The esteemed doctor showed all the signs of a grisly assault, and yet there were no signs of a murder weapon to be found. Nothing pointed to a forced entry, or even so much as a light skirmish. The place was spotless. However, it wasn't that there wasn't any evidence to be found. They just weren't looking in the right place. What was first thought to be a household chore gone wrong turned out to be so much more. And to the detective's shock, the twists and turns did not stop there. With each passing day of the investigation, a web of infidelity, past crimes, and rage began to emerge. And it wasn't long before the death of Jim Yates was all anyone in Australia could talk about. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the murder of Jim Yates, an esteemed Australian surgeon. This week, we'll cover the bizarre twists and turns that occurred during the first few days of the investigation. Next week, we'll discuss the court case that followed and how things only seemed to grow stranger as the case carried on. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Fifty-year-old Jim Yates was driving to his house in Sydney, Australia on September 14, 1960. Around 11.30 p.m., he arrived home and parked his bulky sedan in the driveway. Half an hour later, Jim's neighbor, Ada Smith, was up and stirring about the house when something peculiar caught her eye. She saw Jim's car parked outside with the engine running and headlights shining into the open garage. It was an odd sight, but she didn't think much of it. She went upstairs to sleep beside her husband, Roy. However, when a coughing fit woke him up at 4.30 in the morning, Roy was surprised to see the car with its engine idling. He picked up the phone. Hello? Diana? Yes, yes, it's four in the morning. Is everything all right? I'm not sure. Have you seen Jim? His car's been running outside the garage since midnight. He never came home. I thought he just had to stay late at the hospital. Maybe take a look around the house? Jim? Jim, are you home? Roy, I can't find him. I'm sure there's an explanation. Do you want one of us to come over? Yes, please. I'm, I'm not sure what to do. I'm worried. Just sit tight. Ada dashed across the street where she met Diana. The two then walked in the dark garage with only a gaslit lamp to help them see. However, as Diana cast her lamplight around her, Ada saw something that made her nearly faint. It was a man's body lying motionless on the ground. Trembling, Diana knelt down and put a somber hand onto the body's back. Ada watched in terror as she lifted the body's head and began to sob. (laughs) It's... it's Jim. He's not breathing. (laughs) The two of them stood over Jim's dead body for a few minutes, and as the sun began to rise, a small pool of blood around his head became visible. His skull had a massive gash from his forehead all the way to the back of his neck. A bubble of foam frothed from his mouth. At 5.30 a.m., Diana made a call to the police. As soon as Sergeant Dick Lendrum of the Sydney PD caught wind of what had happened to Dr. Yates, he phoned Detective Raymond Benson. Sergeant? So, the station already called you? Yeah. Some housewife found her husband dead in the garage? It's Dr. Jim Yates, a surgeon. One of the best ones in Sydney. Oh, fantastic. I give it an hour before the scene is crawling with press. Save the attitude, Benson. We need this one done right. And you're right about the journos. His wife was the one who found him dead, so they're going to be flocking to this one. But play nice this time, got it? Meet me there in 30. Yeah, yeah, I'll be there. 
Detective Benson was as seasoned as they come, and his lauded career was defined by a no-nonsense approach to police work. As far as he was concerned, anyone at the scene of the crime who wasn't a fellow officer was a distraction. He arrived at the Yates' home, and much to his dismay, reporters and photographers from the local paper, the Daily Mirror, had already begun to swarm. Just as he was known to do, Benson spared the pleasantries and dove right in. He headed straight to his sergeant to find out if he had gathered any more information about Yates' untimely death. You talked to the wife yet? She's real cagey. It's a bit odd, to be honest. We hadn't asked her more than two questions before she requested a lawyer. What? The housewife just found her husband dead on the ground, and she's asking for a lawyer? It's strange, that's for sure. We managed to talk her down from that ledge, but as soon as we got past that, she started bawling and said she was too upset to talk. It's understandable, I suppose. I suppose. Let's go take a closer look at the body. While Lendrum debriefed Benson, another rival newspaper team had gathered outside the Yates' house. He screamed at them to back up and looked as though he might launch right into the lot of them. Luckily, a few other officers were at the ready to talk him down and de-escalate the situation. After Benson took a second to compose himself, he and Lendrum walked into the garage. Armed with lamps in the light of the sun, Jim Yates' body was on full display. His bloodied and colorless body was starkly contrasted by the smears of blood that stained his hands and the concrete around him. The gash on his forehead was deep and jagged and led directly up to the fracture on his skull. Most interestingly, a broken light bulb lay only inches away from Yates' body. This could have all been chalked up to an accidental slip while trying to replace it. However, the gratuitous wounds inflicted on the body told a different story. And for a detective as meticulous as Lendrum, the story meant everything. Unsure of what to make of it all, they went inside the house to try and talk with Diana Yates. Lendrum and Benson followed a quaint pebble pathway that led to a small home that overlooked the bay. Inside was Diana, her hair pulled back tightly and her eyes glazed over. To the officers, she looked more disheveled and nervous than grief-stricken. Sitting on either side of her was her brother, David Dickens, and the family doctor, Diana insisted that both of them sit with her while the police questioned her. The detectives were apprehensive but obliged. Not to mention, it didn't hurt having two more witnesses at their disposal. Diana gave a curt retelling of the events that led up to her finding Jim's body. Her statement was not particularly enlightening. However, something about David caught the detectives' attention. Mrs. Yates, we found a shattered light bulb on the garage floor next to your husband's body. Were you aware of this? Yes, when I first found him, I did notice that. Do you have any idea why it might have been there? I suppose not. Well, Jim was always using this rickety old ladder to replace the light bulb. That's what you were telling me, right, Diana? He almost fell right on his face several times. Or that's what you had told me earlier this morning. Oh, right, yes. That is true. I'm sure he was just in the garage changing the bulb out. Right. Okay, David, we'll get to you shortly. 
Of course. I just wanted to make sure Diana and I can be as helpful to you two upstanding officers as possible. Benson and Lendrum took careful note of David's frequent interruptions. It was as if he was trying to get his sister to stay on script. But by now, almost two hours had passed since they first arrived on the scene, and they still had no leads. So they left the house and returned to the garage to take another look at the body. Once more, Detective Benson was down on his haunches, meticulously scanning the room for anything that could help him make sense of the situation. But every angle, every inch, every vantage point brought him no answers. Here was this body riddled with brutal injuries and blood everywhere, yet not a single weapon or sign of forced entry to be seen. Jim still had his wallet on him, and Diana confirmed nothing was missing from the garage or the house, so robbery was out of the question. That meant he likely had to have been targeted. But there were few surgeons in Sydney with such a spotless personal record. He was beloved by co-workers, neighbors, and just about everyone who knew him. Benson was trying to think of some new angle when something caught his eye. Two tiny specks of red on the upper left section of Dr. Yates' shirt. He hunched down even further to get a closer look. Lendrum, get over here. What is it? You see it? Bloodstains, right above the heart. Nicely done, detective. Wait, wait, Benson, don't touch the body until- I'm not waiting around another second. (sighs) Oh my God. Do you see it? Tell me you see it. Yeah, right there, I see it. A small wound. Straight into the heart. A few minutes after the shocking discovery, a government medical official arrived on the scene to inspect the body. The detectives immediately asked him to look at the wound. It was hard to tell exactly what it was, but after examining it with a magnifying glass, the doctor had a pretty good guess. So, what do you make of all this? Well, it seems to me that this is a puncture wound, one that looks incredibly consistent with that of a hypodermic needle. Like a shot? Detectives, I believe that someone administered an injection to Mr. Yates not long before he died. Benson took a long draw of his cigarette as he let this revelatory discovery wash over him. In the blink of an eye, this went from yet another frustrating and slow case to one of the most intriguing and strange investigations he had ever worked on. But most importantly, as far as Benson was concerned, this was no longer just another case. This was a murder. Coming up, the detectives look far and wide for suspects, and Diana Yates starts to crack. Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fowls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and a house party gone horribly wrong, to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results, 
Go deeper inside for affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with Party Fowls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. Listen free only on Spotify. And now back to the story. After a grueling morning trying to make sense of Dr. Jim Yates' death on September 14, 1960, detectives Ray Benson and Dick Lendrum finally caught a break. Just above the dead man's heart was a small puncture wound, one that they believed was caused by an injection from a hypodermic needle. Soon after this discovery, Yates' body was moved to the morgue. Benson and Lendrum made sure the coroner paid careful attention to the alleged injection point. And after almost an hour of scrupulous measuring, testing, and inspecting, the detectives were delighted to hear that their hunch was confirmed. This was indeed a wound that could have only come from a needle point. But the coroner had more news. You said there was a doctor on the scene of the crime, correct? That's right. He was the family's practitioner. Why do you ask? Do you have any reason to believe that he tried to resuscitate Mr. Yates when he arrived? No, he was long dead by the time the doctor arrived. Well, I can't be certain, but there are various signs that this man was administered a rather large dosage of adrenaline at some point before his death. A potentially lethal dose. While Lendrum and Benson stood in awe of their newest discovery, the world found out about the untimely death of Jim Yates. Just about every paper in Sydney published a picture of the tall doctor, standing proudly and wearing his favorite pork pie hat, paired with the headline, Doctor Found Dead in Garage. The newspapers weren't reporting it as a murder yet, but as far as the police were concerned, there was no doubt. And although the general public only had scant details to make sense of what had happened, it was a devastating blow to the medical community. Jim Yates was a pillar of Sydney Hospital. So much so that the hospital's superintendent, Dr. Norman Rose, insisted on fielding each and every press inquiry about Jim personally, of which there were dozens. So you knew Jim Yates well? Absolutely. He worked under me for years. One of the hospital's finest surgeons. One of the finest I've ever seen. The man was beyond dedicated. Studied in London at the Royal College of Surgeons. Served as a medical official in the Middle East. He was even decorated for his medical service in New Guinea during the Pacific War. He seems like a wonderful man. Now, I have to ask, just because there's been some gossip, but would you say that Dr. Yates had any enemies at the hospital? Enemies? Absolutely not! Jim was adored by all. What are they saying? Well, some people have gotten the idea that maybe Jim was murdered. I do not see how that would be possible. At least not at the hand of anyone employed by this hospital. I can guarantee you that. Word of Jim's alleged murder was spreading rapidly both inside the hospital and throughout the rumor mill in downtown Sydney. 
The detectives knew all too well that if rumors got out of hand, the case could be compromised, so the pressure was on. On September 16, 1960, the day after Jim was found dead, they headed back to the Yates' house to have another word with Diana. Just like last time, her brother was practically glued to her hip during the entirety of their interview. As they conducted their questioning, they couldn't help but notice that the two of them were acting even stranger than last time. After your husband's autopsy, we were able to discover a wound in his chest that's consistent with a puncture wound from a needle. Did you or your brother inject him with anything after finding his body? Dear God, no! That's absurd! Please don't take it personally. We have to ask. Absolutely not. Well, if that's the case, then it is our duty to inform you that it's the opinion of the North South Wales Criminal Investigation Branch that your husband's death was the result of foul play. We'll be launching a full investigation into his murder, and we'll need full statements from the both of you. What? That's absurd! I'm telling you, if you knew Jim, you would know how sloppy he got with that ladder! He's right. If only you knew Jim! I'm afraid that's just not how we see it. We... we're gonna need to get in touch with our lawyer. This is purely routine. There's really no need Detectives, to- Detectives, not another word until we have our lawyers. Their lawyer arrived shortly thereafter and cut the meeting short. The detectives would have to wait for Diana and David's statements, but at that point, it was irrelevant. Their behavior over the past two days was reason enough to think that the two of them were involved in Jim's death in one way or another. Now it was just about figuring out how and why. But just as the detectives felt as though they were getting closer to an answer, they received some news from the coroner that made them reconsider everything. After spending more time inspecting Yates' heart and the trajectory of the puncture wound, it became clear that whoever administered the injection knew exactly what they were doing. It went straight to the heart with surgical precision. Yates' killer was most likely a fellow medical professional. That same afternoon, only a few hours after leaving the Yates' home, Detective Lendrum got a call that would change the entire trajectory of the case. It was from another doctor at Sydney Hospital, one who knew Jim Yates very well. This is Sergeant Lendrum. May I ask who's calling? Hello. Uh, my name is Dr. Eric Hedberg. Uh, you're heading up the Yates investigation, right? That's correct. Are you a relative or friend of the deceased? Coworker and friend. Our families knew each other very well, actually. I was hoping we could speak. Yes, of course. But just quickly, you knew Yates outside of the hospital? That's correct. He and I go way back many years. Our wives were also friends. My wife passed, but when she was still with us, her and Diana were very close. Diana, right. What was your relationship with her like? Oh, um, right. Uh, we were uh, friendly, I suppose. Uh, so you said we could meet somewhere then? Yes, that's fine. Meet me at the Rose Bay Marina in one hour. As Sergeant Lindrum sat in the police cruiser on his way to the marina, he thought of all the cases where he'd spent weeks searching for a killer. But today, it seemed that the murderer might have come to him. When Lindrum met his man, 
47-year-old Dr. Eric Hedberg, looked like the last person you'd ever expect to be a murderer. He was tall, handsome, and had a wholesome glint in his eyes. He was a decorated veteran, senior surgeon, and a widower. If this was Lendrum's man, he was going to need some compelling evidence. Otherwise, there was no way anyone at the station would buy it. The two got to speaking, and according to Hedberg, he simply called the detective so he could be of service to the investigation. Albeit disappointed that this was not a confession, Lendrum did find Hedberg to be a useful well of information on Jim's past. However, Hedberg's behavior towards the end of the conversation brought the sergeant pause. I know you and Yates were close, so this might be difficult for you to hear, but we have reason to believe that he was murdered. We found a small puncture wound near his heart, and we believe someone administered a lethal injection of some sort. Oh, that's... I mean, a needlepoint like that seems difficult to even identify. How can you be certain? We had a trusted government official go over the body several times. We've even cross-referenced everything with doctors at the hospital where you work. Everyone agrees. Well, that's certainly... odd. A small puncture wound to the heart shouldn't even cause much harm. I doubt that's what killed James. We're fairly certain it is. We have reason to believe he was given a dose of adrenaline. Do you know if Jim or anyone close to him may have had access to adrenaline? Ha! That's preposterous. Surgeons of our caliber would never use anything like that. Likely some petty criminal, if anything at all. Right. Following this conversation, Lendrum immediately had his officers do extensive background checks on Dr. Hedberg. The way he had reacted to the fact that police believed Jim was murdered was a massive red flag. His defensiveness, the way he rushed and stumbled through his words, the sweat that visibly collected on his brow. Lendrum had seen it all before, and he knew that Hedberg was hiding something. And four days later, he would receive yet another call from Hedberg that only made his suspicions intensify. Coming up, Dr. Eric Hedberg scrambles to defend his innocence. And now, back to our story. In September of 1960, Detectives Roy Benson and Dick Lendrum of the Sydney Police were making fast work of the Jim Yates case. Only one day after the body of the 50-year-old surgeon was found in his garage, the detectives were able to surmise that Jim was administered some sort of lethal injection. Now, they just needed to figure out who did it. And Lendrum had a pretty good idea of who that was. Although Dr. Hedberg claimed to be a longtime friend of both Jim and his family, the detective had his suspicions. The second that Lendrum revealed that Jim's death was now being investigated as a murder, Hedberg's entire disposition changed. The once charming and confident doctor grew withdrawn and shaky. Lendrum considered having some officers keep an eye on Hedberg's car and house, thinking that he might have the inclination to leave town after his disastrous interview. However, much to Lendrum's surprise, Hedberg showed up at his office four days later. 
He had a confession to make, but not quite the one the detective was expecting. I can't believe it. That's the guy. The one from the Yates case. Okay, stay close by and write down everything he says. Got it? Yes, Sergeant. Dr. Hedberg, what a surprise. Please, take a seat. Yes, uh, hello. I have some information that could potentially be useful to the investigation. Uh, you see, I completely forgot to mention it the other day, but I had actually purchased some vials of adrenaline last week. Is that right? And do you think that is somehow connected to the adrenaline that killed Yates? That's the thing. The adrenaline was actually stolen out of my car. And, well, considering my ties to Jim and his family, I believe I'm being framed. Someone clearly wants to destroy me, whether it be for professional reasons or otherwise. Maybe a co-worker at the hospital. Is there anyone at the hospital that you think would be capable of committing such a heinous crime? No. But, well, you never know these days. Could be anyone, I suppose. <laughs> Isn't it funny? The guy who is going out of his way to try and be as useful as possible to the case is the one who ends up getting framed. Life is funny like that, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is. Dr. Hedberg then launched into a barely coherent theory of just how the vials were stolen from his car and how the murder was carried out. Lindrum didn't believe a word of it. As far as he could tell, Hedberg knew he was a suspect and was scrambling to cover his tracks as best he could. But still, even though Lendrum believed with every fiber of his being that Hedberg was at least somehow involved with Yates's death, there wasn't enough evidence to arrest him just yet. So he linked back up with Benson and headed to Sydney Hospital. Their only piece of concrete information was that the puncture wound that killed Yates was made with the precision of a trained medical professional. So they conducted interviews with nearly 100 of the hospital's employees. Most of it left the two detectives none the wiser, but one cardiologist did have something to offer. During a board meeting that took place around 9 p.m. the evening of the murder, Jim Yates received a phone call. Jim told the witness that the caller had asked when he'd be home. The witness didn't remember who had called, but he did remember that the caller was a man. Lendrum and Benson had a few more questions to ask this witness. Was Dr. Hedberg at that same meeting? Eric? Well, funny you mention it. He was, but he actually took off just before then. Maybe at 8.45? Just enough time for him to make it to the house. He called, waited outside the house, then struck. Wait, what? Dr. Hedberg? You couldn't possibly... No, no, of course not. Lendrum is just speaking in hypotheticals. After that, every hospital employee that was called in was questioned about Dr. Hedberg's relationship to Jim Yates. Unfortunately, most of these testimonies offered little information that helped the detectives. However, the next day, everything was about to change. The sister of Hedberg's deceased wife, Patsy Wilson had just arrived in town, and she wanted to speak to the police about her brother-in-law. The next day, she had Lindrum and Benson come to her hotel. I saw the news about Jim in the paper a few days back. As soon as I saw it, I knew I had to come down here. 
What's the connection here? Eric, that foul man. He always had eyes for Diana. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you telling me they had an affair? Oh, I'm sure of it. He even wrote a letter about it all to poor Joyce before she passed. But he destroyed it. I knew it. I could smell it on him. He's our man, Benson. Not so fast. You're accusing a man of murder here. Wouldn't be the first time. Patsy told the detectives that when her sister initially fell sick with cancer, Hedberg administered treatment to her in their house, a practice that was illegal and very frowned upon in the medical community. No one knew but close family. After the supposed treatment, Joyce fell unconscious. When she awoke, she couldn't walk and she couldn't keep a bite of food down. Then the chest pain started. Several days later, she was admitted to the hospital after having a heart attack. Joyce confided to her sister that she believed Hedberg was trying to poison her. Her death came abruptly only a few weeks later. As far as Patsy was concerned, this was all orchestrated by Hedberg. The thought that he was capable of killing again was by no means a long shot. And Patsy wasn't the only one who thought so. Lindrum and Benson had heard more than enough to send them on the warpath to convict both Hedberg and Diana. But while this was all happening, Diana was hiring a new lawyer, one that would make the two of them nearly untouchable. It seemed as though every time the police got a lead, Diana and Hedberg were three steps ahead of them. In just three months, the story of the doctor murdered by his wife's lover would be on the front page of every newspaper in Australia. Hundreds would line up outside the courtroom where the two would be tried for murder. But nothing could prepare the public nor the police for the onslaught of secrets, betrayals, and injustices to come. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Jim Yates. For more information, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Needle in the Heart Murder by Candace Sutton to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Drew Lawn, Albert Park, Ellie Schiff, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners, it's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fowls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. 
Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. <laughs>